All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Good to see all of you here. We are in Mark chapter 3. If you turn in your Bible there, we're going to look at a message about restoration, restoration. Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6, so take your Bible, open it up there, and uh, before we go any further, let's pray one more time. Father, it is good to be in your house today, and it's good to know that uh, we can share in the work that's going on with Dios Meve, and um, also, Lord, that we can see missionaries all around the world uh, making an impact. We are on the radio in several states in the U.S. We have missionaries going all over the world. We have people who are visiting our site from other countries and listening to the Word of God, sending us notes. Um, and in our own Jerusalem, Father, we celebrate the fact that we're in... Uh, almost 10 schools now, preaching the word of God to public school students during their normal school day. What a great uh, thing that's happening here. And that's just a little bit, that's just a little taste of what's going on. And we're, we're telling people about restoration. We're telling people about how to find hope and life in Jesus, how he will extend his hand to heal our brokenness, our dryness, he is the fountain of living waters, and he gives living water. Lord, before we come into this Bible study, I want to just pray for that person that's feeling dry right now and feeling broken, like they need a fresh touch from your Holy Spirit, and I pray you'll do exactly that for them this morning. And I also want to pray, Lord, that we'll see ourselves in this story, that we'll put ourselves in the story and ask, who are we in this story? And that we won't just read the Bible, but the Bible will read us, Lord. We know when you share truth, it's not intended to weigh us down. Truth is intended to set us free, to lift our burdens, to show us our God in fresh and wonderful ways. So would you search my heart, O oh Lord? If there be any wicked way in me, Take it away, point it out to me, Lord, and lead me in the everlasting way. Help me, Lord, to not fall even into presumptuous sins, as David prays in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 19. Let your word, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, Lord. We're here to hear from you. Tune our hearts into your voice. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word and let us make the application that your spirit would speak to us, your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Mark chapter three, last time we were together, Jesus made this startling statement at the end of Mark two. He was saying to them, Mark two, look with me at verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The meaning is simple. The Sabbath was created that man could rest, reflect, return to the covenant, if you will. Not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not an end in and of itself. You were not made just to honor a single day during the week. That's not the end of your spiritual or religious experience. Not just going to church and sitting in a seat or going to synagogue as they would back in the day and sitting in a seat. No, the Sabbath was made for man. That is, this is a time since this is our Sabbath, if you will. Sunday has become the day of worship in the church 
for us to reflect, for us to connect or reconnect with God, for us to ask the Lord to bring us living waters, to write his word on our hearts. And then Jesus says, consequently, the Son of Man, Mark 2.28, is Lord even of the Sabbath. If you're Lord over something, then that means you own it and you can determine how it should go. This is a message this morning for anyone who's feeling dry, for anyone who wants to feel the touch of God, to sense his power, his leading, his grace. In Psalm 63, the psalmist said, man, I feel like I, wear, I live in a dry and thirsty land, a dusty land where there is no water. I want to be uh, that man that finds my uh, life-giving strength in you. That's what this sermon's about. And if you uh, now look with your Bible, Mark 3, verse 1. And he, Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. I just want to park here for a second and tell you that this was the normal place of worship for a Jewish person. And when you read the New Testament Gospels, you're going to find the word synagogue over and over again and not church. Because remember, the Gospels are largely about a group of Jewish people who are meeting the Messiah. Their place of worship was the synagogue. There wasn't even a formal church yet. Jesus mentions the church later in Matthew 16 and says the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. And they would assemble on a Saturday morning following the sunset on Friday where they would enter into the Shabbat. And Sabbath means seven or the seventh day. It points to rest or restoration. If you look at that word up on the screen, what you can see right now is a tree that is looking dead. And the word restoration, notice that in the word is the word rest. And we could talk about things being restored, and we're going to talk about that. But one of the things that the Lord wants to do for you and me is constantly restore our rest in him. We find in this world, we live in this fast-paced, moving society, and we, we have a lot of things weighing us down, and the Lord wants to restore your rest. That's part of what the, the Sabbath is now. The Sabbath is not a day of the week. The Sabbath is finding rest in Jesus. The church shifted from Saturday to Sunday worship service in honor of the resurrection, but the day that we meet on is not as important as the message that we give, and the message that we give is simple and clear and profound. Rest is found in Jesus Christ alone. Greg Laurie was preaching at the Harvest Crusade. He preached to about 100,000 people, plus people who were watching as it was streamed live. And he mentioned a young lady named Lana Del Rey. And Lana Del Rey made a statement recently where she said she'd like to join the 27 Club. And the 27 Club is a group of musicians that over the years died at the age of 27, including Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, most recently, I think, Kurt Cobain. And she lives in this world where she has this fascination with death, and she's mentioned that she wanted to join that club. Now, some people said she did it for publicity's sake. Some people are saying that she's actually 28 years old. But her message is pretty uh, alarming when you think about it. Here's somebody in their 20s who's talking about death and talking about all the dark stuff of life. Look, if you're in your 20s, you should be talking about life. 
If you're in, 20, in your 20s, I want your knees. My knees hurt. And I said to the first service, how many of you want to go back to your 20s? And it was a mixed response. Some of the people were going, yeah. And some of the people were going, no, 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 no. But I think we all agreed that we wouldn't mind going back to our 20s if we knew then what we know now. Praise the Lord. I just want 20-year-old knees. That's all I'm asking for. And so here's this, this gal I want to join. You know, how sad. We live in a society where people are contemplating suicide at younger and younger ages, where it seems like there's a dark cloud over many people's lives. Instead of celebrating life and the privilege it is to be alive, especially alive in Jesus Christ, we have people fascinated with death and dying at a young age. What in the world is going on? And Jesus enters a synagogue. A synagogue was a place where there were a bunch of imperfect people just like church on a Sunday morning. People at all different stages. And the nation that Jesus had come to, which had synagogues all over the landscape, was largely lost. There had been 400 years of silence without a prophet speaking to the nation. And John the Baptist came, and he was preaching a baptism of repentance. And the religious leaders within the nation largely rejected him. They wouldn't bow to the coming Messiah. And all of a sudden, Jesus is in a synagogue, and there is a man there with a withered hand. Immediately, the focus becomes the man's condition. The word withered in Greek is zeraino, and it means to be dry or parched. It's used of plants and dried wood. The word means to make dry, to dry up, to wither, to become dry, uh, to be withered. It's used of members of the body. Uh, the word, the equivalent word in the Old Testament for wither or withers is yabesh. It's Y-A-B-E-S-H. The primary meaning of the root is to become, to be or become dry or without moisture and to be basically either dead or on the verge of death. The word is used in Hebrew as a verb. First, it's employed in the Noahic flood where the ground was dried up by the supernatural power of God. The second uh, use of the verb in the Old Testament speaks of the dry land that Israel walked over as they walked through the Red Sea when God parted the waters. The third truth communicated by this verb, yabesh, in the Old Testament is it speaks of barrenness. It speaks of the judgment of God on a, a life or a nation where someone is dried up. David in Psalm 51 said, in Psalm 32, I should say, that he felt like his bones were dried up as God's heavy hand was upon him. He felt like life was just being depleted out of him because he was in sin and hiding it probably for as much as a year. And the final use of the word is found in Isaiah chapter 40 where it says these words, and it speaks of the frailty of mankind. It says, the grass withers, Yabesh, Isaiah 40 verses 7 through 11. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands for how long? Forever. You see, God's word stands forever. Things are going to fail in this world. But Jesus said, my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now there's good news in Isaiah 40. 
And here's how the verses go on. It says, get yourself on a, up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. And in his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. You see, this word and this man become a picture of something deeper. What I've been sharing with you in the Gospel of Mark is that every healing that Jesus does is not just about the miraculous healing that takes place. There's something deeper spiritually, symbolically happening in this healing miracle. The miracles become, remember this phrase, parables of something deeper. The man with leprosy healed by Jesus is a parable of mankind and sin. The man who's lowered down by his friends in that crippled situation and he's told your sins are forgiven represents a crippled uh, spiritual condition or a nation. And this man represents something as well. We're told in Luke's gospel that his right hand is withered. Something's happened where there, there's no more life or blood supply. It may be close into his body. It's not operational. He can't use that hand. And it becomes clear from the other gospels, at least it's implied that he's been planted by the religious leaders because they know something about Jesus. They know that if a man is there broken in Jesus's vicinity, he will try to heal that person, man or woman. It doesn't matter who it is. And he may have been planted there. And the irony is thick. And this may be some of the humor of God but the man that they may have gone and gotten off the streets because they knew Jesus would heal the man represents them. They are withered. They are dried up. They are broken people. They have bought into all the rabbinic tradition that has put all this weight upon people's backs and people are not free and the religious leaders are not free and they're more worried about their positions and they're more worried about their nation than they are worried about hearing from the Messiah. In fact, I think there are scriptures that make it clear as time goes on that they know exactly who he is. But center stage is a man with a withered hand. No life in that hand. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 13, I want to show you a story. So you say, where's that, Pastor Michael? Well, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Okay, so you want 1 Kings 13. Let me tell you what's going on really quick. There's a king named, uh, I think it's Jeroboam here. Yes, Jeroboam 13.1. And he has taken the throne following Solomon's reign. And the nation is divided, and people are going down to Jerusalem for the festivals of Israel. And Jeroboam's becoming concerned that the people are not going to stay with him and be unified with him. So he sets up two golden calves in two different locations, and he set, starts to set up these high pagan idolatrous places. And he's telling the nation of Israel, these are his words, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he starts to make the nation go towards Baal worship or idolatry. And that's the context leading into this story. Now behold, 1 Kings 13, 1, 
There came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And he's standing by one of these pagan idolatrous places that he has set up. And he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord, 1 Kings 13, 2, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Now, if you're one of the priests in the pagan place, I'm sure you're a little uncomfortable at this point. Then he gave a sign the same day saying, verse 3, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now it came about when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, seize him. But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar, here's a quick fulfillment of a prophecy, also was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said to the man of God, please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall, not eat, uh, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and he did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. Now, I wonder if as the Jewish leaders were sitting there and saw the man with the withered hand and perhaps planted him there, if they thought about this story in 1 Kings. And they thought about what this was about. This was a king ruling their nation, at least part of their nation, who was corrupt, who was bringing the nation to idolatry rather than to the worship of the living God. And one of the ways that God judged him was to dry up his hand. And by God's grace, his hand was restored. But that was a well-known story in the Old Testament and becomes a picture of what happens to people who fight against God, who shake their fist against God and his word. Eventually, a dryness can and does come. Mark chapter 11 is where I would like you to go next. Go back to the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, which we're about to celebrate. It's amazing that Resurrection Sunday is just around the corner. And in Mark chapter 11, Mark records Jesus' entry with these words. Pick it up in Mark 11, verse 9. And those who were before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mark 11, verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Mark 11, 11. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. It was springtime, and figs uh, come a little later. And he answered and said to it, 
May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. Verse 19. And when evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. What had happened? It was withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and maybe the mountain on which the temple was built, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. All of a sudden, this fig tree becomes a focal point in Mark's gospel. If you go back to Mark chapter 3, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and he will look over Jerusalem and cry out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Now your house is left to you desolate. And this tree becomes a picture of a nation. A nation dried out, a nation on the verge of death. And you say, are you sure, Pastor Michael? Oh, I'm sure. Because 40 years later, that nation fell to the ground in 70 AD. Jesus died at about 33 AD. So about 40 years later, that nation was no more. That nation was dispersed, if you would, to the four corners of the earth and everything that they were holding on to, the huge uh, temples, the, the huge stones in the temple, uh, all, the, all the things that they saw that were so important would be demolished to the ground because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. And I look at America today. I look at a nation that had its foundations and its guiding truths on the word of God. We just saw a video. Many of us saw the monumental movie yesterday where Kirk Cameron tells us that Congress was printing Bibles. They paid for the Bibles to go into homes and schools in America, paid for by the U.S. Congress. And now in America, we just heard a story that a valedictorian who was going to give a speech at her high school upon her graduation was warned that if she mentioned God or faith in Christ or the Bible, she was warned that she would be thrown in jail in the United States of America. There's something wrong, folks. When a nation begins to move away from what made it great, what made it what it is, then a nation has a choice. And I hope that this tree does not represent the U.S. But more than that, I hope it doesn't represent a bunch of lives in the U.S. And if there is going to be hope that the tree can blossom again, Terry, if you go to the next slide, if life can come back to it again, and this is a fig tree now that's blossoming, it's going to be because we reconnect back to the vine. 
It's going to be because we go back to the foundations and you and I say, I don't care what's happening in the White House. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Revival's going to start with the people of America. Amen? Amen? Do you believe that? In In Ezekiel 19, God says of Israel, specifically Judah, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard. Planted by the waters. It was fruitful, full of branches because of abundant waters. And it had strong branches fit for scepters of rulers. And its height was raised above the clouds so that it was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground. And the east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off so that it withered and the fire consumed it. And now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land, Ezekiel 19, 10 through 14. And fire has gone out from its branches. It has consumed its shoots and fruit so that there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. And the nation of Israel takes center stage, not only in the Old Testament, but in these gospel stories. And Jesus is sending a message to anyone who will listen. If you want life, if you want to be a tree that is blossoming, if you want to be like that tree planted by streams of water who bears fruit in its season and whatever it does prospers, if you don't want to be like the wicked who are like chaff and produce no fruit, then plug in and find life in Jesus. Well, here's the, the synagogue is the location. The, the camera has panned to this man with a withered hand. And there is the Messiah right there. He says he gives living water. He says to the woman at the well, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. He's talking about life, true life. In John chapter 7, he says, uh, a person who believes in him out of his innermost being will flow what? Rivers of living water will flow in and flow out. In the next uh, section in John chapter 8, a woman who's dry and broken is caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders, and this is what the law says. What do you say? And he, in that famous scene, he begins to write in the ground. And he may be acting out Jeremiah 17, 13, and 14 when it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel... All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water, Jeremiah 17, 13, and 14. And then Jeremiah says, listen to these words, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. But many of the religious leaders who were there that day were not looking for the Bible to read them. They were watching Jesus. Mark 3, verse 2 says, and they were watching him, watching him. The word watching is paratereo. It means to inspect insidiously in a beguiling or evil way, expecting something wrong. It means to be scrupulously looking for that which is wrong or a way to accuse. The religious leaders were basically like this. Jesus, we're watching you. We're going to see if you do anything wrong here. And if they planted the man with the withered hand, think about it. That means they knew that Jesus had the power to heal. How sad. 
let's just wait until he heals somebody because we know how good he is and he's going to heal somebody. When he heals somebody, then we'll accuse him. What? They're going to accuse him for good things. Wouldn't it be nice if it was said of us that when people followed us around all day long, they would be able to accuse us of good things that we do instead of not so good things? And there's Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, we're watching. Let's just wait to see if he heals somebody. Look, if you've gotten to this point in your spiritual life where your spiritual world is defined by looking for everything that's wrong, you better go back and revisit your walk, man. I'm not talking about essentials. I'm not talking about hills we must die on, like the deity of Christ and the Trinity and salvation by grace. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about a group of people who had gotten so blind that they could not see right in front of them what was beautiful, what was lovely, what was pure, and what was noble. Their hearts were so turned upside down that all they could look for was what was wrong in the one that was the one who distributes living waters. Wow. And here's Jesus, and they were watching to see if he would heal him And here's the word, on what? On the Sabbath. In order that they might accuse him, they were watching him closely with their broken, hardened hearts. They were those dry trees. They were in desperate need of restoration, but they couldn't see it. It's much more comfortable when you can just read a story in the Bible and you don't have to put yourself in it. When you can be the judge of that story. How many of you were here for last Sunday for Charlie Campbell's presentation on seven evidences why the Bible is divine rather than human in origin? After that presentation, do you really have any doubt that we're dealing with the word of God here? I think some of the skeptics, I think a large portion of the skeptics like to try to judge the Bible, thereby they think they won't be judged by it themselves. It's easier to comment on it and pick it apart rather than say, Lord, let it read me. Let the Bible judge me instead of me judging the Bible. But it's a much more comfortable position to be in to call yourself a theologian who nitpicks at everything that you think is potentially wrong. And here's these men, and they are lost. They're waiting to accuse him, and they have added so much tradition. So much tradition has been piled on the backs of people, they can't even move on the Sabbath day. Go to Luke's gospel. Luke is just the next book to the right, chapter 13. Here's a story that symbolizes the whole deal, and I think Jesus purposely healed on the Sabbath just to rattle their cage, which is something I very much like about Jesus personally. Luke 13, verse 10 Jesus, Luke 13, 10, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. By the way, this is being recorded by a medical doctor. Luke 13, 11, she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made erect again, And began glorifying God. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, that is to the healing, there are six days in which work should be done, therefore come during them and get healed. But not, this is sad, not on the Sabbath day. This is church, man. (laughs) 
All right? You people, you've got six other days to get this stuff done. Wait, wait a minute. There's a woman, 18 years, she's been living like this. She's made her wrecked again. And what does the guy say? Hey, don't you people have homes? <laughs> What's going on here? And she's a picture of the nation. Bent down, weighed over by man-made religious and tradition, and now set free by the Messiah. Do you have a weight on your back right now? Have you, put it, have you piled that stuff on yourself, you know, believing that you had to be good enough to please God? Look, these people, they had all these burdens on their back, and the rabbis even said they didn't object to healing on the Sabbath day. They said, whenever there is doubt whether life is in danger, this overrides the Sabbath, according to some Jewish writings. But if it wasn't life-threatening, they felt like it should be done on another day. And Jesus said, if one of you has an animal and that animal falls into the pit on the Sabbath day, will you go get the animal out? Mm. The answer is yes. But you'll leave a man or a woman there on the Sabbath just because it's the Sabbath day. See, the Sabbath is about rest. Duration. It's about reconnecting with God. It's about having that life in you that is truly life. And I don't know about you, but for me, I was the person in the pit that Jesus pulled out and pulled me to rest and life. I celebrate that every day of my life. Where would you and I be if he didn't stop and pull us out? He didn't say, hey, Hey, wait till tomorrow. Sorry, but there's, a, there's something in the law that says we... I know your ankle's broken, but it's not going to kill you. You'll be all right. <laughs> what? No, if you're the one down in that pit, what are you saying? Lord, now don't pass me by. Don't pass me by. And the essence of the law, 613 commandments and subcommandments go down to be codified in 10 commandments and then ultimately go down to two commandments. And they are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love who? Your neighbor as yourself. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? If the law is guiding you, oh yeah. What greater thing could you do on a Sabbath day than extend a hand of restoration? Amen? Sometimes we get caught in these, these things that this is what we do on this day that sometimes we can miss that Jesus came to lift people's burdens and give us rest. You see, the deeper symbolism is here right before us. Back to Mark, and we'll finish it up. So he says to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forward. Now, so far, he's just been kind of a guy that's there. Now, all of a sudden, he's called to come forward, and that's really what's happening with the nation. They're asking to rise and come to Jesus. Will they listen? Well, the man does it. And he said to them, and this is a question they had asked of him in another gospel, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To do harm. To save a life or to kill it? But they, I'm sure they were looking at each other, kept silent. How do we answer? I don't know. I don't know. Shh. Shh. And so all of a sudden, the man comes forward. And after looking around at all of them, waiting apparently for a response, he says to the man in Luke's gospel, this is chapter 6, verse 10, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. 
How does a man with a withered hand, broken hand, stretch it out? How do you do that? By faith. You know, you might have an area of your life that's broken right now, and you're saying, Lord, I don't even know how. How do I get to you? How do I find restoration in you? It's beautiful that the word, his hand was restored, is the same verb in the Old Testament to save, and it's used in the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew uh, uh, translation of the Greek, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the word is used in the Septuagint for the restoration of Israel. Listen to these verses. David prays, restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Psalm 60 verse 1 says, thou has been angry, O restore us. Psalm 80 verse 3 says, O God, restore us and cause thy face to shine upon us and we will be saved. This cry is repeated in Psalm 80 verse 7 and Psalm 80 verse 19. And Peter on the day of Pentecost, preaching to a largely Jewish crowd said, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration. And the man's life with a withered hand about to be restored is a picture of a coming time called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and the world's going to get new heavens and a new earth, and death is going to die in the resurrection, and people who were once broken will be restored again, and that's our future, praise the Lord. And I was in a class this last week at Cesar Chavez. I have fourth through seventh graders, so their ages are about nine, ten years old, all the way up to like 13. And so we did pizza, and I had like 23 kids in the class, and they're pretty fired up, and they've had cheese and pepperoni. And they started firing Bible questions, and the subject was the second coming of Christ and the resurrection. And for like 20 minutes, these kids are firing incredible, theologically deep questions about how the resurrection body's going to work, and what age will we be? And I said, I think uh, I'm hoping 18, and, and, and <laughs> hoping 6'2", 175. But, so... And so this one kid, a little kid named Diego, pretty new to the class, he said, Pastor, I have a question. He said, my, my brother's been reading the Bible to me, and we we're reading in Genesis, and we're back in the garden, and, and they're telling me that when everything's restored, it's going to go back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. Is that true? And I said, well, I think so, because the tree of life's mentioned in Revelation 21, 22, and yeah, Eden's going to be restored. And he said, I just have one question then. Are we going to be naked? <laughs> and there was, there was, all of a sudden, everyone in that classroom, boom. Everybody, attention on Pastor Michael. And I said, Diego, I sure hope there's going to be clothes. <laughs> That's my, I'm going to pray about that now. <laughs> wow. If a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. His law is love. If you were ever going, if you're wrestling with something right now, you're ever gonna try to figure out, well, which side should I lean? Look, if you always fail on the side of love, I'd rather fail there than on the side of law. And so the man stretched out his hand. Do you see 
the nation, the broken people within it. Maybe you see your own life. Maybe you see the, the face of a friend, someone you've been praying for. I see in this even Michelangelo's famous painting on the Sistine Chapel that it's the hand of God reaching down to the hand of man and life is breathed in. I mean, what's that moment like when a man with a withered, dried up hand and perhaps life to go with it can extend it to the living Messiah? Well, the man is going to do just that, but let's look at what Jesus' response is in verse five. It says, and after looking around at them, Mark 3, 5, with anger, Jesus was angry. He asked them, is it lawful? Should I heal or I kill? And he looked around and the question was lingering over the room and the man was there and Jesus was angry. There is such a thing in the Bible, by the way, as righteous anger. It's not righteous if your favorite team's losing. You begin to speak to the television about the coaching deficiencies that you see. That's not righteous. Well, maybe it is. I don't, I don't know. Righteous anger is seeing something that's wrong and evil and saying, look, it's right to be angry. If, if you're not angry in the face of evil, there's something wrong with you. This anger that you see in Mark 3, verse 5, is the anger of God. You want to know what makes God angry? Hardened, calloused hearts. That's what makes him angry. But his anger was, it was there, and it was, it's orge in Greek. It's violent passion. It speaks of uh, anger or wrath or indignation. Jesus was angry. And the Bible says, it's you know, you might have anger, but just don't let, what, the sun go down on your anger. I heard, uh, I think it's uh, Gary Smalley's son was on Focus on the Family, and he said one of the worst pieces of advice we've ever given married couples is that in the heat of an angry exchange, and by the way, married couples, here's a little secret, they do fight sometimes. I'm not talking about physical fighting. If that's going on in your household, we have counseling, we need to talk. I am talking about sometimes you disagree in a marriage relationship. And some of the counsel has been, well, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And we can talk about what that means, but it means deal with it sooner than later. But if you try to work it out in the heat of anger, you say, we read a book, and that book says we have to work it out now. You know what happens in those exchanges? You start moving into ancestry <laughs> and there's barbs that are going back and forth. It's getting worse and worse and worse. You go back to the previous decades when they took the last cookie and things are wrong and why? And, and the, one of the best things that you can do in those moments of anger, if you know it's going nowhere good, is call a timeout. You know, even adults need timeouts. And if you fight fair, and here's a very important thing, married couples who made a covenant in their marriage to Jesus Christ, before Jesus Christ, you can fight fair. I will tell you publicly, my wife is on the front row. She can confirm this. We have a wonderful marriage, but sometimes we have spats, a marital spat. We don't always get along. And sometimes the best thing that we can do is break for a moment and begin to look at our hearts individually because it ain't working collectively. <laughs> know what I'm saying? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? That's a little manna humor for you to pick it up. Anyway, so 
So you take a, a time out, and here's a key. Look into your heart and ask yourself this question. What is the source of my anger? Why am I mad right now? Is it because I'm not getting my way? Is it because I'm dissatisfied with something? Is it, is it I don't even know what we are fighting about? Help me, Lord. If you can get a little introspective and say, Lord, what's the source of my anger? And then notice that Jesus was also grieved, sulopeo in Greek. It means he was filled with sorrow and anger at the same time. Let's take it out of the realm of marriage and take it into normal everyday life. Let's say you have a coworker, a family member, whatever, and, and someone is under your skin and you're angry. And every time you think of that person, anger, boiling over on the stove. <laughs> You're thinking of responses or what you could have said in that last exchange. I could have right there. Mm, I could have, but I. You need to be healed. And one of the things that is here is that Jesus was angry and grieved. And here's what I'm talking about. Sometimes if you can step back and depersonalize that situation you might find that you feel some sorrow for that person. You might say, Lord, that person is angry at everybody and everything. This isn't about me. How about you turn what you might want to do and sin in your own mind and all that stuff and you turn it into prayer for that person? How about if you said, Lord, I feel sorry for that person. I'm grieved over that person's condition. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for them. See, Jesus was angry and yet grieved. What, what was the issue? At their hardness of heart, they were calloused. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored, which means it was reconstituted to the health of its former state. Pretty cool. What do you think the man did for a while there? Yeah. Do you think if there was another worship song that played, his hands were up? Do you think he went around town saying, hey? <laughs> no words. Someone might say, who did that? Oh, let me tell you. There's a Messiah named Jesus. And he takes parched, dried up, broken people like me. And I don't know if Jesus touched his hand back. I don't know if the, they interlocked. It may be that he just spoke the word here. That's what the text seems to say. His word is sufficient, which would also mean that he didn't do any work. Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. All he did was say, stretch out your hand. And it's restored. And the Pharisees went out. And immediately began to take counsel with the Herodians, who were a political party in league with the Herods, hated by the Pharisees, but now because they hated Jesus, they got in league with those who they hated, the Herodians, against him as to how they might destroy him. Luke 6, 11 says, they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. What, Jesus, what made Jesus angry and sorrowful was people's hardness of heart. What made the religious people angrier, their leaders, was that he healed somebody on the Sabbath day. That reveals something about the heart. And so here Jesus heals the man and now becomes a further enemy of the religious leaders. And I close with this as we get ready to take 
the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to ask the ushers to prepare to hand out the elements. Are you connected to the one who brings life this morning? Madeline Murray O'Hare, whose diaries were just released to the public, Ravi Zacharias is preaching this morning. She's the infamous atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare, trying to get prayer out of schools and so forth. She wrote three times in her diary that's become public. These words, three times. Would someone, somewhere, please love me? Would someone, somewhere, please love me? Well, Jesus, you said, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, as we close this message, we thank you for your truth, the hope, the life-giving waters you give. Thank you for this story that becomes a picture of a nation or a person broken and dried up, but it's a picture of hope because there's a restoration and you're the God that brings life into very difficult, broken and dry situations. So I pray that you'd extend that hand now to that person that might be crying out in their soul, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian. For the Christian, I pray that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit, touch them and strengthen them for whatever battles they're facing. Be to them their strength and be underneath them as the, as the weight that they need, the, the strength that they need, those everlasting arms to carry them, even hold their tears in your bottle, O oh Lord. But if you're a non-Christian with your head and heart bowed, if you don't know this living water, this, this Messiah who gives it, he would like you to know. But you must extend a hand of faith. You must rise Come to him and ask him and he'll say, stretch forth your hand. I'll heal your life. It's something like this. If this is you, it's something like this. Pray it out loud. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for me. Thank you that your hands were pierced and you shed blood for my sin. Lord, I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead and I ask you to be my Lord and be my Savior. Breathe new life into me, Lord. Save me. You might be a person who's a prodigal and you need to rededicate your life. You don't need the words from me, but just ask him to refresh you and strengthen you as you come back home. Lord, thank you for this, this precious congregation. May you bless each soul as we come to your table now. Bless everybody as they take of the matzah and the juice representative of your life. You're the bread of God. It's symbolic, but there's also a special way in which you touch us at the table, I believe. And as we take in those elements of the bread and the juice, let us think of the life that was given for us at the cross and how you nourish our souls. We love you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.